Every person is unique, carrying a range of gene variants that determines their response to certain diets, environmental factors and stresses. Bioceuticals Clinical Services now offers DNA testing that allows healthcare practitioners to identify these gene variants to customise treatments for better health outcomes. For more information on the Bioceuticals Clinical Services tests, visit the Bioceuticals website or ask your healthcare practitioner. Welcome to FXOMIX with Dr. Mark Donoghue, your gateway to genetics, research and technology in the field of personalised medicine. Hi everybody. Today we're talking with Dr. Jay Lombard, an internationally acclaimed neurologist, author and presenter, not to mention media personality, and a real legend in the field of neurology and psychiatry. Welcome, Jay. How are you? Good. Saying hello, thank you very much. I love Australia and look forward to uh, meeting you in person someday soon. Yes, yes, that that will be a pleasure. I think we're all looking forward to that. Now I have to I have to start. You've crossed the the fields here, neurology and psychiatry. You come from neurology and the science of the brain. And my reading of some of your work is there's another pseudoscience, almost a pseudoscience of the brain the untestable hypotheses of psychiatry. Bringing neurology and psychiatry together seems obvious, but it hasn't been done so far. And why is that? Why is psychiatry and neurology not part of a common profession? That is the the single best question I've ever heard in, in any interview that I've done so far, and I mean that very sincerely. So I think we have to go back to uh, to actually Europe uh, with uh, Kreplin and Freud uh, who were both neurologists, and, and Kreplin uh, was uh, very strongly an advocate that schizophrenia and other serious psychiatric diseases were organically based uh, and proposed to be on an infectious etiology. Um, at the same time, Freud was, was most influenced uh, as a neurologist by um, uh, people in France that were doing uh, work with hysterical paralysis. Right. And uh, psychiatry sort of took uh, its early uh, insights uh, about the biology of the brain uh, from Freud and his understanding of you know what causes hysterical paralysis and, and what would be the sort of underlying conflicts about that. And I think that you know the the reality is that both Floyd and Kreplin uh, were onto something that they, if they were alive today, would be very happy to see that people are beginning to think uh, that that psychiatric diseases are in fact you know biologically based, um, and, and not to dismiss the the existential aspects about psychiatric diseases uh, in 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 a way either. So um, you know, for example, with Sigmund Freud. He talked about uh, what was called the death drive, uh, which was about you know people wishing that you know that they would uh, you know die, and uh, we know that that is a cellular process that is activated in patients with depression um, and other neurological diseases. Uh, it's a process called apoptosis mm-hmm. or cell death. So I, I think that you know both Freud and Kreplin I think need to be brushed off. 
for us to have a fuller understanding of the merger of neurology and psychiatry. Right. Well, that was that a divergence that was intentional? Like they they went different directions in opposition, or were they both at core? You know, had a biological basis and then just drifted apart. I, I think Kreplin was talking about patients that clearly had a uh, you know an identifiable organic right. syndrome. So people with psychosis. Uh, very clear that their biology was related to their psychiatry was related to something biological. Yeah. In Freud's case, Freud was really intuiting biological processes, but didn't have the vocabulary of neuroscience to really describe them, except in metaphor. Uh, and there's there's actually work by Carl Friston uh, out of Cambridge uh, that has sort of re-explained. Uh, the dynamics of Freud psychiatry uh, based upon looking at MRI studies of patients in psychiatric disease. And that's, I, I think, a, a way of sort of rediscovering Freud's insights uh, in a way that I think most psychiatrists don't even appreciate uh, because they, they, they really converge both back on biology but also on, on, on metabiology, if you will, as well. Right. I'm sure Sigmund Freud would not recognize the psychiatry of today. And in a strange sense, psychiatry no. <laughs> has become biological and pharmacological in a way that I suspect was never yeah. anticipated. But the pharmacology has been done yeah. in a bit of a vacuum. Uh, it is, here's something yeah. that works. Do we know why? It seems that we had little understanding of it before we were applying very powerful drug therapies on the basis of it works, therefore we do it. That's right. That's exactly right. And I think that, you know, I like to sometimes make uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek jokes that psychiatry has lost its mind. <laughs> and and meaning that, you know, psychiatrists, uh, at least in the U.S., uh, very rarely do any any type of even rudimentary therapy with their patients. They, they just prescribe medications. The medications that they prescribe are purely on an empirical basis. Uh, and uh, essentially treatment guidelines are established by pharmaceutical companies and, mm. and not by best practices. So this is uh, sort of what we're up against, uh, both as a company but also as a society, to help really teach psychiatrists more an understanding of systems biology so they can actually use their, their medications more appropriately when they're indicated but also understand that there are systemic processes that are, are critical to the manifestations of, of psychiatric disease that are biologically based and, and do not relate at all to the drugs that are currently available. Right. How did you cross into this area? So I'm guessing your training was purely in neurology. No. It isn't. Actually, no. I actually started out uh, in psychiatry training. So I, I trained... Uh, after medical school at one of the major research schizophrenia uh, sites um, in New York. Um, it was called at the time Hillside Hospital. It's now part of a large corporate conglomerate called Northwell. Uh, but the, the chief of psychiatry there uh, was a psychiatrist named Jeff uh, John Kane, and the vice chairman was Jeff Lieberman. And Jeff Lieberman went on to uh, become the chairman of psychiatry at Columbia, where he still is. Right. Uh, and they, I, I really, they, they intrigued me with their research on the biology of schizophrenia. Um, but the clinical training that I was receiving uh, in tandem with uh, the research that was being done 
there was no there was no connect. Like, it was just like you know the the research was one thing, uh, and the clinical application of of conventional psychiatry was something totally different. So that's why I, I jumped ship to neurology uh, because I realized that then as well as now, the majority of psychiatrists have uh, really uh, a very rudimentary understanding of neuroscience. And just to give you a quick anecdote, I was giving grand rounds at, at one of the medical schools a few years back on the neurobiology of, of PTSD and depression. And, you know, all the residents were, were looking at me like, like I was talking a different language. And after the grand rounds, I, I had an opportunity to have lunch with the chairman of psychiatry who knew I had a look of disappointment on my face about the, the lack of interest or, or engagement that the residents of this top-notch medical school had. And he said to me, psychiatrists did not, you know, sign up to be neuroscientists. Mm -hmm. And I said back to him, I said, well, how can they think about treating the brain without having a fundamental understanding of neuroscience? I mean, to me, you wouldn't go to a cardiologist who didn't understand every single blood vessel in the heart. You wouldn't, uh, you know, go to a neurosurgeon and have a tumor removed. If you didn't know the difference between the basal ganglia and, and, you know, the frontal cortex. So why are we allowing clinicians to prescribe medications that profoundly change the chemistry of the brain without really understanding what they're doing other than the most, you know, superficial way? It does seem as though psychiatry and biology have to eventually rejoin. It, it seems self-evident that biology is the basic description there. The physics and the chemistry and these these basic sciences do take a priority over opinion-based medicine. But the journey has yeah. been a ridiculously difficult one as far as I can see. Is that your experience too? It has been a very difficult journey. Um, the journey's not over, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, part, uh, you know, part of you know, our mission as a, as a company is to really help not to, you know, to give people answers to, to the questions, but to really give them the tools to understand the biology uh, of patients with neuropsychiatric disease so that they can actually, you know, address it in ways that are not just symptomatic, but are, are primarily addressing some of the fundamental you know, biological problems of these conditions. And that's, that's sort of my goal. Uh, and it's been, it's been, it has been a very long journey. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough, tough area. The brain, the complexity of the brain, which I, I think we all kind of imagine the mind is situated somehow as a result of that complexity of the brain, it doesn't break down easily to an understanding. We can do PET scans, we can do imaging, we can do, we can do all kinds of things, but the there is an innate complexity that I don't think we've ever got to grips with. And we have tools that initially anyway are fairly crude. You know, do you know about methylation? Do you know about APOE? Do you know about, yes, we know these things. Do they translate directly? No, they don't. The complexity seems to be that in the right conditions, psychiatric disease or variations of normal psychiatric function emerge and if you don't know why, then you're left with just hammers and screwdrivers to kind of put it back into place. And then no one asks the question. And so from what I've read of your work, you're asking the right questions and then you set up, you know, a genome mind to go and take that level a level further, which is can we be predictive? Can we do good science here 
rather than just rely on that old DSM as the manual to tell us what disease is what. That's right. And I think the key word for listeners to understand is epigenetics. Yeah. Um, because genetics is not deterministic. And that was, I think, the hardest first hurdle to overcome uh, with physicians in psychiatry who had not been familiar with you know, genetics in relationship to psychiatry. And I'll tell you just a quick funny story. When I was thinking about Genomine before even there was a company, I was taking my, my most recent vacation about eight years ago with my family. And I just happened to sit next to a child psychiatrist uh, at this pool. And he said, you know, what do you do? I said, I'm a neurologist, but I'm thinking about starting a company uh, that's going to use, you know, genetic biomarkers to help psychiatrists. Hmm. And he said, genetics has nothing to do with psychiatry. And I, I looked at him, I said, listen, look at my two, look at my two children. My two children, unless they're from different fathers, which may be the other possibility here, you know, have very different rolling of the dice, but, but it's a genetic roll of the dice. Yes. Um, how can you dismiss the genetics? And, and this is, you know, before even, you know, the genome-wide association studies started teaching us a lot about the biology of psychiatry. Um, and that, that was really sort of the inspiration to, to not only, you know, identify those key genes, but to understand um, what it is about those genes that drive psychiatric disease so that we can actually, you know, get at the core of the dysfunction. Yeah. And, a, and a very, I think, good example for, for your listeners is uh, the research that's been done on what are called ion channel genes. Uh, these are, are calcium and sodium channel genes that relate to the balance between uh, depolarization of the brain and hyperpolarization of the brain. And you know, it's it's it. You know, when you when you say to me, it's very very complex. It's also you know, Einstein once said that you know, make things uh, as simple as possible, but not any simpler. And and really understanding depolarization, hyperpolarization as a a net you know, oscillatory system that becomes imbalanced in psychiatry uh, is the way to to uh, really simplify and reduce very complicated concepts into something that you know even non pharmacologists could understand. Um, and that I think you know that insight uh, really comes from my experience as a neurologist because epilepsy is a very similar uh, type of clinical phenomena uh, where you have that imbalance between excitatory and inhibitory inputs in the brain. The, that instability, I mean, the, the miracle of the brain is that it's stable at all. Um, with That's that, right. <laughs> with that amount exactly. of complexity, exactly. it, it is a miracle That's that right. it works at all. However, yes. when yes. it goes wrong, <laughs> the, the brain... Can you tell me what's your concept of brain and mind? I, I mean, it's a, a basic underlying question of science. The mind is difficult to bring back to the biology, but it is clearly rooted in that biology. How do we link those two things together, the brain, the mind, before we get any further into epigenetics or genes that predispose? Are they, are they linked at all? Oh, well, 100% they are. In fact, you know, I think that there's you know, still, to my dismay personally, uh, a, uh, a, a, a prejudice amongst my colleagues in neuroscience, that there's no such thing as mind. Right. That it's it's all reduced just to brain. Right. Um, and I think that's a that's a really very very 
uh, slippery slope when you arrive at that conclusion. And I, and I think that, you know, some of the work that Carl Friston, again, I mentioned him because I, I think that he and his research has, has really been the best to kind of see the soul in the machine, uh, for lack of a better analogy, that, you know, what, what is the soul in the machine? Where is the, uh, where is the mind in the brain? Uh, and how does the mind actually relate to the brain? Um, so first of all, anatomically, the areas that we refer to as being mind uh, or brain is called the default mode network, mm. uh, which is a converging area that's involved in, in emotion, memory, all sorts of you know complex higher consciousness level functionality. But what Friston has shown is that there's something called free energy, um, which can be assessed through uh, certain types of modalities uh, called diffusion imaging that's able to assess the, essentially the, the, the rate of flow of information in the brain, uh, and whether that information is formed in a coherent way or becomes fragmented as it does in conditions like right. schizophrenia. So a lot of researchers in psychiatry are using, uh, this technology, uh, called DTI to identify, you know, where the mind uh, literally converges uh, in a diseased way uh, on these brain pathways. Okay, so I mean, in the past, what was what happened was we waited for brain injury to see what was lost, and then tried to match what was yeah. lost with you know the Phineas Gage concept of remove the frontal lobes. What happens? And it was an observational right. kind of science that ended up in textbooks. Yep. Now you're saying that we can actually see the imaging or the networking or the information exchange that is the hallmark of normal versus abnormal function. Is that what I understood there? I, I would tell you that, yes, that's, that's the emerging science um, of psychiatry. Uh, is it ready for clinical prime time? Uh, definitely not. Right. But uh, uh, I, and I think, you know, and why Friston's uh, name keeps coming up in our conversations is because what he has been able to show is that Freud's original notions about about concepts that we have an ill-described technical term for, like will. You know, what is what is what does a person's will mean, or or lack of their will? Uh, that person has been able to show that that is quantified uh, through free energy assessments uh, of brain imaging studies. Mm-hmm. So it's. You know, um, and it kind of, you know, it's interesting because Freud, again, Freud was looking at patients that did not have clear organic disease, right? They they were not like Kreplin's patients that had, you know, overt motor and, you know, perceptual problems. These were patients that were, you know, just seemed like that they had nothing organically wrong with them. Freud Freud knew there was something organic, but he didn't know how to really describe what that organicity was as a neurologist. And that's, that's kind of, you know, how psychiatry began and how probably psychiatry will end up revisiting Freud's notions mm. and understanding that, that concepts like, you know, id and, and, uh, you know, the will or superego, uh, really are anatomically based. And that, that is where the, the lack of cohesion in psychiatric disorders actually comes from. Right. I would like to just come back. The area that you have focused on is less the imaging and more 
as I understand it, the, the genetics, how the individual person's genome and the epigenetic expression of that, how these play out um, to create mind and mental illness or mental health. How, with all the complexity that we're seeing now with epigenetics, with microbiome genetics, with environmental impacts, stress impacts, how's the untangling of that? I mean, it's tough enough just to be looking at the genetics without having to go through every last detail of how that is manipulated by environments and internal, external environments that are largely out of our control, even nutrition. So when you go down into the genetics, there's so many manipulating factors. How do you compensate for those and understand why a person may have a mental illness, why, what can be done for that person with that mental illness? That's a fantastic question. And I think the key word is how do you untangle? Uh, that that web, if you will. And mm. so I think the, the first thing to understand is that the genetics of mental illness, um, or I actually would rather actually change the, the, the terminology away from mental illness to neurodegeneration, because we know that patients with depression have uh, untreated depression, have a higher risk of developing dementia, so we really need to think of, of, of you know, these conditions, PTSD uh, and depression left untreated will become neurodegenerative conditions. So I think, uh, yeah, so I think we need to understand a little bit about the genetics, um, but also understand that, you know, the genetics is very, very complicated, but what's not complicated is the transcriptome, uh, meaning that there's only, you know, there's 23,000 or I forgot the number of, of, you know, genes with, you know, millions and millions of different potential mutations. But at the level of the transcriptome, that is actually more uh, able to be comprehended clinically. And what's really exciting about those findings uh, is the convergence of, of functional medicine and how a systems biology approach to functional medicine can really help untangle that mystery. So I'll give you just one very, very interesting example that happened literally on a conversation I had with a patient of mine uh, who's actually uh, involved in research with uh, a neurodegenerative disease called Huntington's disease. Uh, And what he mentioned to me, very alarming, because that disease is a, a known hereditary disease. It's, it's, it's basically, we know the gene, we've mapped the gene. Uh, you know, it's, it's, there's no doubt what, what causes that disease. But what he said to me today, which was very alarming, is that the, the, the epidemiology of juvenile onset uh, disease is, is, is growing. Right. Uh, and that's, you know, something that, is alarming that means that there's something environmental yeah. uh, that is triggering uh, a higher expression of this disease. And so to, to make a long story short, because we could talk about this forever, uh, is that what we're learning uh, in neurology uh, is that neurodegeneration uh, is very, it, it's, it's very much the same uh, in terms of its underlying pathophysiology, what's different is the location and the proteins that are being affected. Where, where in the brain or nervous system is what creates different clinical disorders. 
So for instance, if you have, you know, protein aggregation in the, you know, hippocampus, that's where uh, you're more likely to get, you know, MCI or Alzheimer's disease. If you have protein aggregation and motor neurons, uh, you're more likely to get ALS. If you're more likely to have protein aggregation in, in the basal ganglia or the substantia nigra, you're going to get Parkinson's disease. But the protein aggregation, the mechanisms of protein aggregation are, are overlapping. And what's overlapping about them is that there is dysfunction uh, at the level of the gut microbiome uh, that that increasingly is being understood by, you know, conventional neurologists uh, that are doing conventional research uh, on these diseases to the point where uh, I could tell you many of them uh, are on board with considering uh, treatments uh, for these conditions that, that, you know, have never in my life had I ever dreamed a neurologist at, at a major teaching hospital would agree to. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and we're talking about things like, you know, probiotics and prebiotics and, you know, changing the gut microbiota with, you know, interventions that are totally non-pharmaceutical. Uh, it's just, to me, it, it's come full, full circle. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's an exciting time. I, I think it's a very exciting time because, you yeah. know, we're, we're really seeing the first glimmers of, of how to actually both prevent these conditions Mm. but also, you know, potentially how to treat them. And that's, that's a very exciting time after being a neurologist for, you know, 25 years to really finally tell patients that, yes, I think yeah. we're really on the verge of some very, very significant clinical breakthroughs, not just in basic science, but clinically. As, as a uh, generalist, I get to send people to gastroenterologists and I've been impressed. Um, there's a, a doctor over here, Tom Barodi, who does fecal transplants for various conditions. The changes in the personality of a person after fecal matter transplants, they always change. And the most common thing is, I didn't even realize how depressed I was until a flora exchange, taking out inflammation, reducing a lot of their other symptoms, done for other reasons like clostridial infections, yeah. how big a difference yeah. it makes to what was previously yes. called psychiatry, people drop their medications yes. when the root cause is identified. Yes. And I, I, you know, you're the second person that I heard this name. Uh, so maybe it's worth repeating both for me and for your listeners uh, who's doing FMT in Australia. Uh, yes. Because I just spoke to uh, a gastroenterologist in New York and she mentioned the same name. So it's, it's good people to know who this doctor is. And, in fact, I would love to speak to him directly. Oh, I'm, either, I'm sure you, you know, will. When you're in Australia, Tom is a—he's an adorable person. He's—he um, has to have had a tough skin to get through what he's done. Which is, you know, back yeah. in '95, we were doing fecal transplants for people with fatigue syndromes after antibiotics, and the outcomes were spectacularly yeah. successful. And I had a prior yeah. opinion that it would be a disaster that you could not do that without destroying a person's health. But Tom has kept on going. He's had enemies in the gastroenterology area, in the psychiatry area, in every area around. And it's amazing how uh, eventually truth emerges in a way that is quite fascinating. He, I don't think he was ever doing this for improving psychiatric conditions, but the improvement in the psychiatric state is unmissable when you have seen it happen. That is amazing to hear that. And it's just, it, it's inspiring to me because 
you know, I've needed a lot of thick skin myself to to be looking at the uh, the, the the other side of of things. No pun intended. Mm-hmm. In the case of of fecal transplant therapy, then you know, I also need thick skin as a neurologist <laughs> to be you know speaking to my colleagues about about suggesting this and being you know first mocked, then ignored. Uh, and now finally listen to, so it's it's great. <laughs> well, the final step, of course, is it becomes so obvious that everyone knew it. They just didn't know that they knew it beforehand, and then, then you get sidelined. That's right. <laughs> so they move past you. That's right. You, you gave me a bit about the origins when you were thinking of Genomind. How did this progress from an idea to a kind of a business and a science? How did you move it across there, and, and what, what was your thinking along the way, and how has it emerged? So the the idea for Genomine started, I think, in 2009. Uh, I was at the time chief of neurology at Bronx Lebanon Hospital, and doing you know just pretty much acute neurology care, um, and had really missed uh, my my former practice, which was at the Brain Behavior Center, where I, I did sort of an amalgam of neurology and psychiatry, right. uh, behavioral neurology, whatever whatever you want to call it, and. Uh, I was also doing consulting work for a biotech VC firm, uh, looking at new technologies, uh, you know, for different applications. And most of what I looked at was all Me Too technologies. Like, okay, well, you know, we're taking Prozac and let's re, re, reconfigure Prozac so we can get it through the FDA very fast. And, you know, in that review process, I met Ron DeZort, who is a psychiatrist by training, but uh, is a uh, person who formed the largest psychiatric insurance company in the world uh, and had sold it uh, and was retired for about about two weeks uh, when I met him, meaning that you know he he wanted something new to do, even though he was in his mid seventies at this point. So I, I said to him, you know, look, you're a psychiatrist. Uh, I'm going to explain that I think that we could develop biomarkers for you know for treating psychiatry. Uh, so the first person he, he introduced me to was the, uh, the, the head of NIH. Um, and, wow. uh, it was a, it was good introduction. Yeah. And it was like with Francis Collins, you know, who's, mm. who's still head of NIH. And I, I'll never forget that I was at, I would think I was like at some restaurant with my wife for like the, the rare date that, I, that we would have. And, uh, Ron calls me up and goes, Hey, can you speak to Francis Collins about this idea you have? And I'm like, oh, sure, no problem, you know? So I got on the phone and discussed it with him. And then uh, he put Ron back on the phone. So Ron said, okay, you know, sounds like something that, that uh, there's interest in the science community. Hmm. Let, let's put together a company. So uh, the first thing I did was pick sort of the, the who's who of genetics and psychiatry and neurology, by the way, because right. I had... Uh, you know, wanted to bring neurologists and psychiatrists together uh, for this project. And um, so we identified, you know, really the who's who of psychiatry and neurology. Um, and they, you know, helped us to really uh, do our due diligence on what uh, biomarkers in, in the genetic field have been validated as being a useful signal uh, for helping psychiatrists to understand the biology of their patient's psychiatric disease. Uh, And that's where really the company evolved uh, from. And where it's evolving to 
is that now the neurologists on my SAB board are, are more deeply involved uh, because we created a new test uh, called Mindful DNA, <laughs> uh, which is yes, kind of kind of interesting, right? The evolution that that's our second test. Uh, that's about to be launched uh, basically any day now. I don't I don't know when, but it's it's really based on you know a functional medicine slash systems biology approach. But oh. it was developed with the, the leading geneticist at at Harvard Medical School uh, to make sure that I was staying in my swim lane here because you know I I, I never want to be regarded as being a a, a bleeding edge person as opposed to a leading edge person. Yeah. That's a tricky thing to do when when you're talking about genetics and psychiatry. Yeah, over here we we have the prospects. Out, I mean, everywhere we have the prospects. We have a group called Genome One here. Their claim just a, a couple of months ago that we're moving to a point where the whole of the human genome, the whole of genome study on a person, will be down in the affordable level of hundreds of dollars to, for the whole you know snapshot of the twenty three thousand genes. And while they're focused on, you know, the Huntington's and the specific one genes now, the next big step forward in computing is the associations of those, what patterns develop, how do we understand their expression. It's still an enormous job even with yeah. the, thank God we didn't have more, you know, we were expected to have 200,000 genes, we only have 23,000. It would have been a horrible job if we'd uh, be more complicated than asparagus. Thank God we're less. <laughs> so, um, well, they, 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 they still have a problem that, you know, most of the people are doing, uh, you know, high throughput sequencing of, you know, the entire, uh, you know, whole exome sequencing basically or West. Uh, and that is that most of the reports of those, uh, those abnormalities, if they're not, you know, clearly associated with mm. a disease, uh, particularly in psychiatry, uh, they're reported out as vari variations of unknown significance, or VUS. It doesn't really help the clinician because, you know, when you get a report back like that, uh, that means that, well, you know, it's a variation. We know it's abnormal, but we don't know what it's linked to physiologically. Wow. So, you know, we, I kind of, I'm such a, a, a passionate geek about this is that I, I kind of, you know, forget about AI and forget about, all those other, you know, modalities that, that claim to be able to, you know, interpret large bodies of data. As a clinician, when I get data on, on whole exome sequencing patients, I, I have to decode that data for my patients. I know. know? Like, I know. You know. It's the most heart-sinking feeling, isn't it, that here's 300 pages, what's wrong with me? Uh, and the breaking that link of saying yep. it is not all in your genes. There is there is much, much more to it than that, and it has to be simplified. Yes, and especially when we know that there's, you know, 10 trillion more bacterial genetics are in our uh, yes. biome, or whatever you want to call it, than we have human genomes. That really adds another layer of complexity. Mm. And you mentioned, you know, interesting, you mentioned Clostridium. So Clostridium has been shown to actually hijack the human genome. No way. Really? Yes. Uh, they're called transposons, really? uh, in which the genetic machinery of Clostridium uh, literally shuts off uh, genes in the human genome that are able to produce bile acids. And the reason that, that Clostridium does this, and I, I really hate this bacteria because, to me, it is... It is like it's 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 as a clinician, it's my number one adversary. 
Uh, and I tell you that not tongue in cheek because it is a very, very smart evolutionarily designed, uh, bacterium to elude detection in patients who are otherwise asymptomatic. And what Clostridium does biologically is repress a, a gene called bile acid hydroxylase, which converts primary bile acids to secondary bile acids. Um, and the secondary bile acids in turn become depressed uh, in patients, uh, which allows more clostridium overgrowth uh, so that it, you know, for, for its purposes, it's doing good as it, as it kills the host. Yeah. But it doesn't do good for the host who has that bacterium that's hijacked its bile acid genes. Mm, those bile acids are really important for maintaining diversity, the secondary bile acids for diversity. And so I suppose its interest is cut down diversity, dominate, and it has no uh, yes. sec secondary love of its host yes. beyond its ability to multiply. Exactly. Clever, clever bug. It's a clever bug, but it, it hasn't met my brain yet, and it's, <laughs> it's about to. So, uh, you know, the, the good thing about 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 it, this data, uh, is that right now, you know, there's clinical trials uh, that actually one of my one of my colleagues on my board, Ruby Tansy, uh, to give him a shout out because they're they're using uh, what are called secondary bile acids. Uh, the abbreviation is called TUDCA, which is uh, stands for a taurine deoxycholic acid. So it's a reduced bile acid mm. uh, that's, bio, that's basically bioavailable. Uh, and they're showing clinically that the, the, the use of this slows the progression of ALS. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the, so, you know, of course, I have, you know, all my, my ALS patients uh, on this compound. It's safe. Mm. Uh, it's approved, you know, for for over the counter use, and uh, you know, so far so good. I can't, you know, I I, I don't want to be presumptuous and say that this is, you know, the only thing that we're going to be able to do or have to do for ALS. But it's a biologically mm. uh, very sound explanation for what we're doing when we treat these patients. You are expanding well beyond the field of neurology in the classical sense, although my understanding is the neurology of the gastrointestinal tract is, in a sense, its own field. Our, our immunology and neurology from the gut and its link with the brain seems an incredibly important component of psychiatric disease, neurological disease, and it seems largely unexplored so far. It is, I, I, I call it sort of the, the next wave. I think that we're uh, about to see really an explosion of data about mm. our understanding of the, the, the gut microbiome. And a breaking down of some of those specialties. It's not neurology or gastroenterology or psychiatry. The, until the links are made, as you know, Genomine seems to be doing, until the links are made across those boundaries, we are crippled in the way that we think about the illnesses, mental illnesses and normality of the brain. Yep, and I think that that's, that's going to you know, change in, in real time Do you? For, for patients. I want to I ask you a question. It's bugged me now for 30 years, this idea that psychiatry is a science because what we're doing is rebalancing the neurotransmitters. We're using drugs, and the, the implication is everything is about a neurotransmitter balance, and if we get the pill right and change the neurotransmitters we're restoring a person to so-called normality. And it, 
it doesn't seem to have a science behind it, but that is the narrative that every person who feels depressed, <laughs> sad, anxious keeps yeah. on getting from psychiatry. Is there evidence for yeah. that or is that just mythology that we made up to validate the drugs? I think we've all drank that Kool-Aid right. to a certain extent. All, all psychopharmacologists, you know, sort of have been, you know, um, essentially, uh, you know, guided by those concepts because, as you said earlier, that drugs were discovered and then we figured out, you know, how, the, I mean, they were, drug, they, were, they were basically discovered, you know, by accident, you yeah. know, so whether it was lithium or, or Thorazine, that they were, you know, used for other purposes. And then, oh, wow, you know, my patient is less agitated. You know, what is this drug doing? Right. So I, I think, you know, I, if I had to, you know, discard, not discard the baby with the bathwater, uh, in regards to the notion that neurotransmitter imbalances uh, are, are, you know, at some level deeply related to psychiatric disease, the answer is yes, but with, with a caveat, and that is primarily uh, the glutamate GABA cycle. So yeah. those, those two neurotransmitters uh, are, are still very much in play, both in terms of psychopharmacological manipulation but also non-pharmaceutical manipulation as well. Uh, the serotonin dopamine story, I think that they are, they're kind of like the amyloid hypothesis. They're, they're sort of epiphenomena uh, related to, you know, decompensatory mechanisms that the brain tries to achieve uh, because of glutamate uh, imbalances. Right. So like in schizophrenia, for instance, we know that there's, you know, less uh, prefrontal glutamate uh, and it creates, you know, abnormalities in, in dopamine circuitries and other pathways as well. So I, I think the, the answer is more nuanced than, yes, neurotransmitters, right. no neurotransmitters. I think more specific than that. Well, what, one thing that I know you have experience in is neurodegeneration. And that discussion that we had just a while back where the depression is a neurodegenerative disorder is, do you have a sense of does depression and circumstances and a person's life degenerate the brain? Is it that the depression is a kind of signal for degeneration or are these people predisposed that way so that neurodegenerative changes bring on depression? Do you have a, a, a cause and effect relationship there or they are associated? Yeah, I think there's an association, not a cause and effect. I think it's very hard to to say which comes first, you know, the depression or the or the degeneration, or I, I think it's 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 not causal. But I think that we should go back and think about the word depression for a second, because the the word tells us a lot about what the biology of depression actually is. And what depression means biologically is essentially a repression of normal mitochondrial function. Right. Uh, that mitochondrial pathways. Uh, become literally depressed, uh, and that those pathways also involve the immune system, uh, mm. the nervous system, and just about you know every other organ system that uh, requires mitochondrial functionality uh, to produce ATP in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why there's been a lot of interesting data on using you know mitochondrial augmentation strategies uh, for depression, uh, and there's good you know, clinical data that those, you know, compounds, whether it's, you know, uh, acetylcarnitine or CoQ10 or creatine, uh, or even, you know, primarily using ketones, uh, showing improvement in clinical depression based upon their ability to increase mitochondrial function. 
So we are, we are machines, we do work as machines, and a mind emerges from that. If you look into your crystal ball, if we're saying, where are we 10 years from now, do you have a kind of trajectory, a, a way that you think that we are going, or a, an end point that we will reach in understanding, please? <laughs> I think, I don't think, have, I don't think we have to wait 10 years. I think, uh, I think within the next uh, 18 months, we'll have uh, the trajectory very clearly defined. Okay, and, um, and clinical not, tools for no. doctors is how long after you get the trajectory yes. defined? Yes. In five years' time, will I be able to look at studies such as, you know, genomine studies, studies about the microbiome? Do you think it's reasonable that we'll have a different way of considering psychiatry and psychiatric disease for truly getting to causes and repairing, or will we still be fumbling through this in five years' time? Well, I don't have a, a crystal ball about the rest of society, <laughs> uh, but I, I do have my own crystal ball and tell you that it's 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 not ten years away. Right. Uh, what maybe ten years away is the the application of the science uh, more broadly uh, than it is right now. But as far as you know, to answer your question, I think we 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 have a very clear understanding uh, about you know both pathophysiology. On both the genetic epigenetic basis uh, and what we can do clinically uh, to help patients with these intractable diseases. This is, you know, my lifelong mission, and uh, I'm not waiting 10 more years because my patients don't have 10 more years to wait. It's a fascinating story. I'm busting for you to get over here to Australia for us to have a longer discussions on this because opening up this area of mind, body, um, the brain and the gut and all of these, it's going to be a massive effort. But the conversation has started and I think doctors are starting to realise that biology does underpin most things, even those ghosts in the machine that we've treated in this odd way for over 100 years. So I honour you. It's fantastic work that you are doing and leading in this area. I think that we're escaping from the old grip of 100 and 200 years ago where the mind was just mysterious and we left it at that and in the hands of people who gave their opinions, delivered drugs and then didn't actually get to the cause. So thank you very much for your work. I look forward to seeing you when you get over here. My pleasure. Thank you for the time. Thank you, Jay. This podcast is brought to you by Bioceuticals Clinical Services, providing DNA testing for targeted treatment and optimal health outcomes.